Welcome to the Phoenix Cast, a podcast about cybersecurity, technology, and innovation issues in the military. We are your hosts, John, Rich, and Kyle. Rich and I are U.S. Marines, and the opinions expressed on the cast are our own, not official military policy. And the opinions expressed by me are also my own, not those of my employer or any other businesses I happen to be associated with. For today's episode, no special guests, just the love between the hosts. And can I just take a minute here? I think it might have been one or two decades since just the three of us got together to talk nerdery. Uh, this is literally one of the happiest days I've had in a long time, seeing and hearing both your beautiful faces and voices. Uh, this is great. But we've got some very interesting stuff to talk about today. There's been some interesting things in the news. Uh, and we're going to talk about three very specific problems that have been announced. John, you're going to lead us off, I think. What do you say? Indeed, I am. And I am ready to go. All right. Okay. So so our first item here is a software called Move It. And if you have been under a rock and haven't heard about it, according to the website, Move It is a software application that provides secure collaboration and automated file transfers of sensitive data and advanced workflow automation capabilities without the need for scripting. Encryption and activity tracking enable compliance with regulations such as PCI, HIPAA, and GDPR. That That is verbatim off of their website. I, no, I see two hands raised. Go. No, you, you, Do you guys use this? Like, is this something that, that exists in your world that you have any experience with? Yes. Okay. I have used this. I have used this before professionally. I, I'm not going to lie. This is, and I, I feel like I'm in the GDPR and compliance world a great deal. I've never heard of this piece of software. Does, so that, I, does that make me under a rock? I, I like think it. a little bit under a rock. So <laughs> I have, I read on some of the, as I'm kind of doing the research here, I think I was on Reddit and they, somebody said, what is move it? And they were like, Dropbox, but actually secure is, okay. is kind of the, the cool. Reddit answer for this. Got it. Which again, the point of the show is not to ha ha laugh, but in, in hindsight, that is a pretty funny summation. All right. Take us down this path. Okay. So going down this path in May, a zero day was discovered by a Russian, the zero day was released in May and it was discovered that a Russian affiliated ransomware and extortion group called CLOP had actually been using this zero day and move it. So as of August 25th, it affected a thousand organizations, 60 million individuals. And primarily this is all coming from the U.S., and we're looking at an estimated 10 billion worth of losses. But if you go into the details on this, it's probably significantly more because as with ransomware and extortion, most people aren't going to talk about it. So that right. estimated loss or the people have kind of either through their choice or not come forward with, hey, uh, we're on the list. Uh, but it gets interesting from there. So do you want any questions before I keep going? No. Okay, so, so on we go. And, and I think this is really important for everybody listening because the whole point of us talking through this stuff is one, to make sure you're up to date, but then two, you know, flip the script, think with your defender hat. Yep. So one of the things we're catching from this is this has been exploitable since 21. So we're looking at two years and based on some of the postmortem, what it looks like happened was Klopp came up with the proof of concept the ability to exploit this vulnerability about two years ago. 
And the way they were able to do this is through SQL injection. We've talked through this in the cast before, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on SQL injection. But essentially, they do SQL injection on the software, install a backdoor, and then do a bunch of automated exploitation. And this has been a little bit of a change in TTP from what we normally see with a ransomware group. Because normally the ransomware group, it's vulnerability, install our software, boom, you get a screen on your computer. And as we've talked to in previous casts, give me insert X number of Bitcoins here if you want access to your machine anymore. But this TTP is a little bit different in that they don't say anything. As you can see, maybe up to two years, and then they start siphoning data. Siphoning data, siphoning data. They get a bunch of stuff that they think, ooh, this might be important. And then they say, hey, I've got a bunch of data from insert your organization here. If you don't want me leaking it out on the internet, there's going to be a price. And I think this is a very different target list as well, where standard ransomware kind of goes after any company that it can. This seems to be targeting a lot of very specific types of businesses where that data is highly sensitive and or connected to payment structures and government facilities and things like that too, right, John? Yeah, well, that's where it gets really interesting. So there... I don't want to say a shotgun blast, but it almost nearly is. So what we know so far, again, of people who've either come through or been outed, we're looking at educational, a lot of government. So government can be big. So it's educational, DMV, government. Then we've got financial sector, payroll, media, and even some security companies. And then as I did more digging, there was a lot of talk of, pulling certificates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, these are not just folks that are kind of like quick trolling and, and trying to make a quick uneducated buck. They have put some thought into this. So let me let me ask a follow-up question to this then. As I'm looking at this piece of software, if you think about secure Dropbox, I when I think of that, I think about using like native tools like O365 or Google Workspace and Google Drive as a way to be able to securely transfer data between one location and another. They have all the compliance and regulatory pieces. And as long as you can solve the IAM and security understanding, like that's that's what I like. If I'm going to transfer something sensitive to a customer, for example, I will either encrypt it and then stick it on a Google Drive link that I give only to them and lock to their specific uh, SSO account through Google. Or, you know, th that's usually how I will do this. I will avoid using third-party software in order to do that, primarily because how much can I trust those places to, with my data in, the, in those sorts of ways? So are we are we automatically talking about customers who are self-selecting, and I'm going to be like very overly simplistic here, on sort of the lazy route to say, I don't necessarily want to have to follow good practices and procedures of my local data and the way that I share. So I'm going to offload that to this company. And as long as I'm using this company, then I'm, I'm able to like check my box. Yeah, so I'll I'll jump in here, Kyle. I think I think um, so. I think you, we definitely should think that, right? Like, because most people will take the least challenging road to get to the end state that they're looking for, right? So I think that's absolutely one hundred percent something that we should think about when we're okay. analyzing the scenario. However, I will say this much, right? Like, what I've experienced on these, I will call either mergers, acquisitions, right, or business to business connections is that sometimes folks just don't have the infrastructure there yet, yeah. right? And so I, I think thinking like an attacker here, right? Like what a better way to do your recon than to look at organizations that are about to join, right? And then say, okay, I did a little recon, figured out kind of these are the tools that they use to transfer data, right? 
Um, so let me go pick apart things that they might not be using. And since to John's point, you know, move it has kind of been the secure Dropbox. I won't say replacement, but competitor, right? Like in this day and age, it would make sense to go there. Right. So I, I don't know. I think the attackers might just be like actually thinking, dare I say, I know we use the phrase Dropbox, but outside the box, right. On this one and look at the other, you know, business to business solutions, Dare, dare you call it that, right? Because there are more effective ways to do this. I just think they're looking at it from a, a maturity perspective. Yeah, and w- I'll yes and this because I, I am not saying I don't necessarily disagree with both of you. But, uh, and again, Asterix, not a move it engineer, and I don't know it deeply on the technical side. So I am a little bit speculating here. I believe this also gives you an opportunity to use scenarios, Kyle, that don't touch what you're talking about. You need to get the latest firmware update from your IT to your OT network that you will not connect to the internet. Therefore, you can't Dropbox from there, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think this is, and again, not an engineer for MoveIt, so maybe I'm off the mark here, but I'm pretty sure this is billed as a, here's how we can get files from one disparate type of network to another securely. Yeah, John, I'll jump in one more time too, because I just had a thought, right? Um, and I think, so outside of this, you know, scenario that I mentioned before in, in your OT vignette, right? I think, you know, when you look at why malicious actors use ransomware, right? I think there's fundamentally a TTP difference here, but I'm interested to get you guys' topic on the fly here or thoughts on the fly. So like if I'm going to throw ransomware at a company, right, I'm I'm generally motivated by a couple of things. One, I want money or two, I literally just want to brick that company because I'm motivated by some other emotional thing or rational thing that isn't money. But when you look at this scenario, to me, this, this just smells of like, I'm looking to get intellectual property, right? I'm not looking to potentially like lock people out of their infrastructure, hold things at ransom. So I think that there's a slight TTP and potentially the motivations for the threat actor to use the tool that we're talking about here to do exploitation. Just wondering what your thoughts are. Rich, that that is 100% kind of the direction my research went, or at least potentially suggested. Um, so yes, that that's kind of exactly where my head went. Kyle, Kyle, are you with us or did you go a different way? No, I think I think that's totally fair. Okay, last, last couple things that I think are novel or interesting about this. So there has already been a class action lawsuit for failure to protect PII. But I wanted to get you two's thoughts on this because you got to think, and I don't want to say you've transferred the risk, but I mean, you bought what to the best of my knowledge is a industry leader or at least player in secure file separation like you thought you were doing the right thing yeah for uh, sure. and here we are and orgs are getting owned and i don't have many postmortems of like they set their enterprise password to password and that's really why this happened so right. you know standard disclaimer there applies but it appears like they did the right research did the right thing this third party company that they purchased from had a secure a lack of secure configuration and or software, and now this is costing companies. As a potential CISO in the future, Kyle, how do you feel about a class action lawsuit against you for something that you thought you had coverage on? 
this is a really gray area, and I want to be very clear that all opinions expressed by me are my own and not those of any other people I'm associated with one more time. But I think that it is incredibly unfair to any business that has done the needful and really found something that they thought was industry standard, and then a zero day gets announced that allows uh, a third party to come in and do ransomware, and then you're going to hold that like middle company liable for not following good security practices. I would say if, you know, let, let's just go plausible deniability, right? If the company like plain text emailed all of the social security numbers and everything, all the company and all the sensitive data over and someone sniffed that in some way, they like SMSed it to somebody and somebody sniffed that. Sure, that's like gross negligence. But hey, we bought a piece of software specifically designed to mitigate this particular thing. And then that piece of software gets... Uh, owned in some way, shape, or form. I just don't think that you can... I don't think that's a fair expectation of excellence, right? This stuff is hard, right? We've talked about this so many times in the cast. It is player versus player. It is four-dimensional chess. It's not checkers, right? There's no just checklist that if you follow, you have perfect security. As much as every agency in the world wants that to be the case, that's just not how this works. Now, if you want to if you want to hold Move It liable, I think that's got stronger teeth. But even then, like... It is so difficult to write secure software, everybody, right? Like, don't even get me started on this, like, AI paired programming, coding stuff and secure software debate because woof. But I'm going to get you started right after No, this. no, we don't have time. It's, it's like this, this is a one hour podcast. Okay, so I, I strongly disagree with suing a company because a piece of software they chose that was doing the right thing has a vulnerability that then leaks their data. That just feels like so much fruit of a poison tree or like cause and effect that is not accurate. Yeah. So, and, and then this is going to be a dual rich and Kyle. So the article recommend, and this is where I thought would be some of our best chats article recommends <laughs> to catch things like this, to do pen testing, potentially pen testing as a service. And Kyle, since you, you just talked rich, since I know you are passionate about this, I would love to hear your thoughts in this matter. Yeah, so I'm going to, by the way, listeners, Kyle's jumping up and down in his chair. I just want to let you know that. So I'm going to, I'm going to let Kyle talk to the pen testing thing first, but I do, I I do have a strong opinion on this, John. So I will say this much, right? You know, uh, when, when you're talking about providing a service, which by its fundamental nature is a data storage and transfer service, right? You can pen test that internally. You can pen test, you pay people to uh, come in and, and, and pen test it. You know, you, you can do unauthenticated scanning, authenticated scanning from every which direction, right? Like to Kyle's earlier point, if pen testing and red teaming was the silver bullet, for any piece of software, right? You're, you're talking about humans trying to find flaws in something another human wrote without having the potentially new technologies in the future that could exploit that thing, right? So like, yes, should you pen test? 100%. Should you have an amazing pen testing strategy? Not just an amazing team because building one sometimes isn't going to get you to where you need to be. You need the pen testing 
SMEs potentially if you're not one of the companies that grows that organically. So like your strategy has to be primo, man, especially if you're going to be an organization selling data storage and processing in an encrypted fashion that you know many customers are going to want to buy. That's your business model, right? So you have to do that. But to say that pen testing is the silver bullet, right? Just, it doesn't fly for me. Over to you, Kyle. And before Kyle goes, I want to jump in here. I And maybe I just have too much lawyer on the brain. There's a lot of classes and all that. I'm not even 100%, because we're talking about black box here, right? This is something you purchase from someone else to put into your environment. I'm not even 100%, and I, I don't care to or whatever, before I as someone responsible would start pen testing or launching pen testing as a service against move it. Uh, I would check with the lawyers and see if that's even allowed under your enterprise purchasing agreement. Zero percent. In my opinion, there's no chance they would allow that. Yeah. Kyle, before you jump in there, like, so John, it's really hilarious in my mind that you said that because I didn't even go there. My head was if I move it, Right? Yeah, because you're already you know like, what, no. If, yeah. if I'm a purchaser or a customer of MoveIt and I try to pen test their software solution, stand by because no, lawyers knocky knocky on my door all day long. Right. But uh, meanwhile, I'll Rich and I, in, in our you? personal lives, have talked about how important pen testing is and it b- being misused. Rich is massively passionate, passionate about this. So, uh, giga worthy. Kyle, over to you. No, yeah. So, um, Couple bits of feedback here. Uh, just on that, Rich, I've worked for a couple SaaS companies in as the leader of security, and I will tell you, I've had numerous conversations with customers who are like, "Oh yeah, we're going to pen test you," and I'm like, "No, you are not. Like that is not part of our agreement. Absolutely no. Right? Like if you pen test us and you break something, you break it all for every customer. Like that is a level of risk that no company should take. Right? Like, um, you gotta have, uh brass ones to to take that risk on like you're just saying hold my beer to your entire product suite and your customer base uh i also used to run a pen testing as a service company that used all veterans uh so i feel quite strongly about this whole pen test is the answer ha 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 um right like Let's pull back the layers of that on you real quick. Do you know what pen testing as a service is, everybody? It's a big library of vulnerabilities that some automated piece of software runs against a set of targets that you assign to it. There is very, and I mean exceptionally little human interaction that goes into pen test as a service services. Okay? Like, if you want a human pen tester to come use those same libraries and tools, but to apply the art of the possible, and again, you don't want a computer versus human. That's pen test as a service. It's usually computer versus human. You want human versus human. You want player versus player. That is like the the creme de la creme, if you will, of the best pen test that you're going to have. That's what my company did is human versus human in that aspect. But I'm going to tell you, that would not have caught this, right? Like you could have 15 different pen tests as a service and 15 different humans trying to do this. You're not going to have access to that code base. You're not going to be able to find this stuff out. This is a zero day with a piece of software and, and product that you can do. Um, a, a couple other bits that go into this is just down this path of pen testing is the answer lies madness, everybody, right? Like at some point, the password manager that you use is going to get out. It's just going to happen, right? At some point, the SSO provider that you use is going to get out. At some point, the operating system rolled out on every single one of the systems that you have in your company is going to get owned at some point, right? So what's the answer? You write your own stuff from scratch every time or that you pen test yourself into oblivion and say, oh, that should have caught the problem. Like, how? 
It's called a zero day because people have known about it for zero days. Like that's, it's in the title, right? Like I just, that seems like absolute madness. And I know we're, we're picking on this one article and this one statement that's at the end of it, but I would just say, nah, I disagree. Speaking of absolute madness, Kyle, you're up. <laughs> All right. Um, we're switching gears. New vulnerability that was announced six days ago. And it has a really funny name. It's called Looney Tunables, which I found as someone who used to love the WB uh, growing up as a kid. Looney Tunables is a great name for a vulnerability. So I want to give a gigantic shout out to Qualys, who discovered and published this. Uh, when They published it. But Qualys's uh, security advisories are some of the most incredibly detailed and well-written security advisories you will ever read. They look like they fell out of a BBS system way back in the day because they use the most basic of TXT formatting in order to share information. There's no imagery. There's nothing. It's all text that goes into these advisories. And they're so well-written. So just huge shout out to Qualys on this because I'm basically going to quote a ton of stuff that they did because they, they write it for us in the security business and the security industry. And it's super easy to understand and follow along. So let's start with a couple baseline pieces here. This impacts the GNU C library dynamic loader. If you are not a deep Linux admin, this may be a thing you go, what? Because this is pretty esoteric in a lot of ways. But this is the part of the Linux kernel that finds and loads the shared objects or shared libraries, which we're going to talk about here in a second, needed by any program to prepare that program to run and then runs it. That is a direct quote from the man page for ld.so that's link dynamic shared object loader ldso okay this is used in all effectively modern linux distros you got red hat you got ubuntu you got debian guess what you are impacted there are a couple linux distros that use a very specific different type of loading like alpine and a couple others that aren't impacted by this but you can safely say that 80, 90 plus percent of the Linux distros that are in existence are subject to this. Now, what, what's key about this is that since that dynamic loader runs these programs, it inherently has the ability to run as root. And that's where, of course, everyone's radar should be like, oh, I see where this is going. And it specifically impacts the part of that loader that's called the tunables environmental variable set. And now you know why it's called Looney Tunables and... Ha, there's, there's the joke. And scene. And scene, right, exactly. Didn't, ah, no one saw it coming, but there it was. All right, so this is a super traditional buffer overflow attack. And super lightning speed, if you don't know what a buffer overflow attack, it's very simple. Uh, let's say you have eight characters in memory that you need to store something, and you find a way to tell the computer to store 16 characters in that memory. Well, it's going to store the first eight right where it thinks, but then it's going to store the next eight wherever is next to the memory stack. And that is accessed by all different parts of different pieces of software. And so you can sort of inject whatever you want into that overflowed memory. And that is what a buffer overflow is in like a five second, one sentence description. Now, I want everyone to take a deep breath because what I'm going to do is walk you through some high end nerdery of how this works because I think this is super clever. So step one, this LDSO file calls the tunables initiation function, which says, hey, I need some environmental variables, please. And it sets a ton of things to null right away. It says, clean the slate. I want a clean security posture. And then it expects a very specific format of any of these environmental variables that you're going to get. Like variable one is equal to AAAA or foo. Variable two is equal to BBBB or bar or whatever. And then it removes anything that it thinks is dangerous within that. It does some very basic like sanity checking and, and cleanse 
cleansing of that data. But if you do a very specific thing, which is you say variable one is equal to variable two, which is equal to AAAA or foo or bar or whatever, then the system does three things that you would not expect it to do. First, it places that whole string in memory. Fine, that's what it's supposed to do in the beginning, but it doesn't see a separator. In the normal string, it's like variable one is equal to AAA, colon, variable two is equal to the next thing, and then colon, and the next variable, and the colon, and the next variable. So if you're able to make it where there is no colon in there, you just do variable one is equal to variable two, which is equal to the thing you want to overflow, then it thinks that that last equal sign applies to the first variable that it indexed. So it basically skips that part in the middle, no matter what it is, which causes some really strange behavior in the code. And the third part is then it sees that last part of the code after the final equal sign only, and it appends that. It doesn't replace. It appends it to the string that it stored in memory in step one. And that is where the buffer overflow has happened. It takes that thing that's after the final equal sign, and it dumps it into the final page, or I'm sorry, the following areas of memory. Now, so TLDR, it does a whole bunch of extra stuff because it's basically short-circuiting some of that code. But here's where things get really interesting. That next available memory is six megabytes in size. That's a large amount of code that you can drop anywhere you want. And now that attacker can place any code at once in there, but that next section of memory happens to be the original LD.SO, the whole thing that we're talking about, memory. And so it thinks that that is all safe because remember at the very beginning, I said it nulled out everything and it just left empty strings everywhere. So it goes, oh, I've already done all that stuff. It's all safe. I can run it all. It's no big deal. But it trusts that Tunables did its job correctly and safely, which we've established that we've now short-circuited and have not. And then it trusts that all that memory is still null. But it only checks if those strings are empty at the start and the end of that six megabyte page of memory. So anything in the middle, as long as you start it and end it with an empty string, it'll run anything you want and it'll run it as root. So this is clever. It's like super duper interesting that this team was able to find this. Uh, a couple bits and bobs that go into this. This has been introduced into the code since April of 2021. So this is very similar to what we just talked about. It's been around for a bit and they're just discovering and publishing this. Now, they haven't published the actual exploit code yet. Just the sort of, here's how we, the proof of concept, if you will, is, is published. But the actual code itself of how they discovered this has not been published and they're waiting for patches to come out. But this is just every type of distro you could possibly think of that's used in any sort of enterprise or production or home use. This is it. So whew, thanks for joining me on my TED talk of how this works, because this was I just thought this was super fascinating. So walking it. Down. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen several people on Twitter basically posting some code that they put together. You know, they're like, who am I? Normal user run my code. Who am I root? And they're like, yep. oh, looks like it works on this one, too. Uh huh. Yeah. It's basically whack-a-mole with all the different distros out there right now. So this this just gets super spooky, right? Like this is incredibly basic to do. Like the exploit code is not big at all. And, and the proof of concept code in the Qualys summary, I'm not kidding you, is one and a half lines of what looks to be 256 character string lengths. I mean, it's super simple. So anyone can execute this on any box right now. So what is the answer here? I think, I think we all know. Pretty please, chairs on top.
please go patch your Linux like right now. And please have developed the tabletop exercise with you and your team to be able to pivot quickly and patch large swaths of your infrastructure without it taking six months to do. Pretty much all of the Linux. All of the Linux. Every Yeah, I will, uh, I'll put a plug in here too for, if you were thinking about SaaS, uh, <laughs> if you were thinking about cloud, this might be a good time uh, to re-engage that conversation, right? Because uh, generally speaking, if you're running some stuff on some infrastructure and that infrastructure is provided by a cloud service provider, they're probably pushing really hard to roll these patches out for you. If you're not and you're running bare metal and that bare metal has a connection to the internet, you better be looking at logs. That's I'll just right. leave it there. That's right. And uh, I do not believe pen testing as a service would fix this, but you know we, we should maybe just explore that. Yeah, okay. No, Kyle, no, absolutely. <laughs> seriously, the TED Talk and how you walk through that, amazing. Um, so... <laughs> Did you guys know that Apple had 17 zero days in 2023? I'm sorry, could you say that again, please? So that's one seven for the military types. Um, it feels like days. a lot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so if I tried to do what Kyle just did for the 17, yeah, we would be here for a while, even though it would be a day. beautiful yeah. thing. Settle in, folks. Get a drink. <laughs> exactly. Go grab your bourbon and sit back. No. Okay. So I do want to talk about that, though. So... Apple has logged its, you know, CVE for its 17th zero day in 2023. What am I going to say about this? A bunch of stuff, but I want to just say this up front. Right now, if you haven't patched your Apple devices, plural, devices, plural, in the past week, guaranteed that if you look for that software update, it's going to be sitting there and there might be two of them that you need to do in succession. So uh, please, please, please uh, go do that. We're also going to talk about a vulnerability, not just in Apple, but one that kind of applies to other web browsers as well that's related to uh, a video encoding library. So I would also recommend that um, whatever your browser of choice is, uh, like if you're using Chrome, very easily, it shows up in your upper right-hand corner, the update button. Make sure you do that or, you know, if you had a thousand windows open this last week because you were just furiously looking at things on the internet because there was a lot of news going on this week uh, all over the place uh, and you forgot to close down the, the, the browser and reopen it, please do that. Uh, it'll, it'll run your update for you in most modern browsers. So, okay, having said all of that, let's jump into the Apple piece, okay? So Apple, so Kyle talked about Linux uh, vulnerabilities, right? In, in specific loaders for specific software types. What I want to talk about is in Apple's OS X, right? Their XNU kernel uh, had a privilege escalation zero day that hit. Therefore, uh, any device that uses the OS X kernel, um, which is a lot of their product line, right? I, I dare I say all. It's not all, but most of it, their product line uses this Linux kernel, uh, or excuse me, not Linux kernel, the OSX kernel, which is completely different. And I'll get into that in a minute, um, has this vulnerability, right? So lo long story short, I, I wanted to cover a piece of history here first. The first part is, um, so the XNU kernel actually stands for X is not Linux. So most folks who use Linux and they understand the GNU licensing uh, software for open source software. Um, GNU is generally referred to as the Linux kernel, right? 
um, across all of its different kind of distros and uh, things of that nature. But uh, back in the day when um, uh, kind of predating Linux, Linux getting pushed very, very publicly out into the open source space, um, Apple worked with uh, Carnegie Mellon University and OpenBSD at the time, and they produced XNU, which is the OSX uh, kernel, right? That runs at the heart of the um, uh, the software system itself or the OS. So anyway, long story short, uh, Apple has this zero day, right? That's a privesque uh, uh, vulnerability and they have to roll out patches. And this happened over the course of the past two weeks, really about, you know, I think at the beginning of October, the first week of October uh, was when this, when this zero day rolled out. Um, and in, in addition to that, there was another zero day on top of the one I just talked about that uh, was an issue with the lib or LIB VPX um, uh, buffer overflow, almost like Kyle described. Uh, in this case, though, they're everywhere, it wasn't folks. They're just exactly. everywhere. <laughs> Software uses buffers, right? Um, for memory. So anyhow, long story short, where I'm going with this is that the uh, video encoding library um, had a heap buffer overflow vulnerability. Uh, and that is kind of what is causing these issues in the browsers that I mentioned. So a lot of the browser uh, or companies that own web browsers pushed, you know, a fix to the O'Day um, to actually fix that problem. So the reason I bring that up is because it's not just limited and packaged in Apple's updates, but you should go look at, you know, if there's an update to your web browser to make sure that you're, you're patching that as well um, on both your web servers and you know, on your, on your personal devices. So, um, and, and the last thing I want to note here, cause you know, I have this sticky note on my screen. Um, and it says, Rich, talk about war fighting. So I want to bring this. What, what a pivot. The, what a hard pivot. I want to, I want to bring it's this, not actually a pivot. Just <laughs> I, I, exactly. I want to bring this out of uh, the nerdery for just a second uh, to kind of identify with some of the folks that, you know, are in the uh, profession of arms that happen to be listening to the cast. Uh, and so what I think is really unique. So I gave the historical note, right, about CMU and OpenBSD kind of working with Apple to produce XNU. Um, but I want to go into kind of a geopolitical note really quickly here. So since Apple has had these 17 zero days in 2023, um, there's been some nation states that have kind of brought this to light, almost in the sense that they're trying to highlight or spin a narrative to say, hey, don't use Apple products because look, look at all these O-days, right? And is 17 O-days this far into the year a lot for a, a product? Absolutely. But to Kyle's earlier point, software security is hard. And if you are one of the leading providers of both hardware and software coupled in a product that everybody loves and it's super ubiquitous and very intuitive, people's going to come after your softwares. It's just how it works. So the reason why I'm bringing this up is um, China has been spinning a narrative about how Apple products are not good. And that internally to its domestic population has obviously been pushing things like Huawei or indigenous technologies, which I would say there's nothing wrong with a nation state doing that. But to kind of say that, hey, this global leader in one of the uh, you know most, I would say, pivotal products of, of my lifetime, right, 
isn't doing software security correctly, I think is a huge overstep in misclassification of all these problems, right? So um, I just wanted to throw that out there because I think you should pay attention to what the news is that's coming across whatever you know digital resource you're using in your hand is uh, because just because these software companies have these vulnerabilities doesn't make their products bad or inherently um, risky for you to use from a personal privacy perspective, right? We, we all know Apple has gone to great lengths to keep organizations like governments out of their technology stacks, right? And that's one of the reasons their customer base loves going with their products. So I just want to throw this out there, right? Because there is this idea of what, you know, uh, nation states would call discourse power, right? Or the ability to influence large swaths of populations by pushing a narrative that seems legit until you peel it back a little bit. And so I just found this geopolitical kind of lens on the problem, not from just a tech perspective, one that I thought was really powerful, especially when you're kind of peddling that to, I don't know, a population of 1.4 billion people. Uh, that's kind of a pretty big deal. So when we talk about information operations, right? Or information warfare, as, as many people read in the news. This is the thing, ladies and gents. So I, I would just say, taking a look at a kind of peeling back the onion on what some of these headlines are, is also one of the reasons that John, Kyle, and I like to do this cast is just to educate and make people self-aware of, of some of the headlines out there. So I know I ranted there a bit, <laughs> probably too much on geopolitics, but it really caught me off guard. Um, just kind of seeing articles flying around like that, that like, oh, you had 17 zero days. You must be horrible. Your products must be horrible. Therefore, let's not use those products and use other products. To me, that just, that was no bueno. So don't know what your guys' thoughts are on that. So I just, uh, Rich mentioned the news and uh, everybody knows I'm a big podcast listener. When Paul Security Weekly covered this specific news article, they said it was highly speculated that this was one of the Pegasus uh, zero days. And again, Pegasus is, is one of the companies that exploits iPhones for uh, nation state level uh, support. Um, and what I thought was particularly interesting, kind of a, what Rich was saying, if your software was selling for, give or take, a million per zero day, that's an awful lot of motivated people to go out, research, and write zero days. I Like, is anybody that good to be able – like, you know what I mean? If you think about, like, Kyle, yeah, could you imagine if, Ky, if Kyle's software went for a million a zero day, it doesn't matter how secure your developmental, developmental principles are, they're going to be found. At a Listen, million I've, I've seen the code I write. I'm just going to throw it out there. No <laughs> zero day against my software is worth that much. That, I'm just saying. It's like <laughs> lowest yeah. common denominator. And right. I mean, Apple somewhat recently has started to, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong here, they've started doing a security only inline patch. So if you know, you're in the middle of doing something and you don't feel like rebooting your phone, you have the security patches where I believe you can just do this inline even without a reboot because they've recognized how quickly they want to get this stuff out. So, John, I, I can't answer that question with 100% certainty, but I love that. And I'm going to go look that up myself because that would make me even like these you know, companies that try to protect your security and privacy like 
in real time. So um, again, don't know if that's uh, true because I haven't done the research, but it sounds amazing. It sounds like something that Apple would want to provide its its customers. Um, and you know, the other thing I wanted to say too is, you know, that that little bit of a geopolitical rant that I went on there. Like ultimately, what this comes down to, and I think we said this on like one of the first casts. It, it has to be. I'll make this claim within the first five, right? That we've recommended three general things for technologists or just regular users of tech, right? Patch, log, and have a plan to respond when those two things don't go well, right? Like these are immutable laws in my mind of technologists, right? You you just, you need to understand this, right? So I, I would just say that. So again, with, with all of that, yes, there were a lot of zero days. Yes, you should go past your Apple devices and your web browsers. And two or in three, you probably should just understand that auto patching is the thing you should care about. Um, um, so I'll leave it at that. Uh, I do want to move on to one other really, really cool thing because uh, I know we've been talking about a lot of doom and gloom, right? A lot of zero days, a lot of flaws in security. But um, and I'm super interested to get your guys' thoughts on this. So the state of the DevOps report that Google oh, yeah. releases every year. It's a beautiful thing in my mind because it every year um, Google uh, and, and a lot of other organizations kind of look at how well they're doing development operations, but not just to deliver really good software that you, their customers love. It's really looking at how does their business function what motivates their technologists and their engineers to come work on the problems that they're trying to solve for their customers? And it's it's really a human-centered report. So if, if you haven't read one of these before, we'll have a link in the show notes. It's super cool. They also give an XM so you don't have to go nerd out on the whole thing. But I do want to talk about this really quickly because it's a super positive thing. So um, the state of the DevOps report, right? So uh, this report... Um, Basically, it's been going on for nine years uh, where they've released this, right? And it's Google Cloud's DevOps Research and Assessment Team, or DORA for short, that produces this. But um, they assemble data from more than 36,000 professionals worldwide, right? Making it, in their terms, the largest and longest running research of its kind in the DevOps community. So let's talk about some things that the report found that I'll turn it over to the guys to talk to talk a little more. Uh, so a couple of things, some highlights, right? Again, I mentioned this is kind of a human-centered report. So the highlights of the report basically say that if you want to deliver really impactful um, customer-centric software, you have to do a couple of things really well. And they bring these out in the highlights in the 2023 report. So the first one is establish a healthy culture. The report goes through in detail why culture at a company results in highly effective uh, software development processes inside the company and also really, really awesome software from a customer perspective. Uh, so that's kind of the first highlight in the report. The second one they talk about is to build with users in mind. Most people say like, Rich, it's 2023. Why would we not build with users in mind, right? <laughs> well, I'll say this much, right? It's one thing to do some research in your user base and say like, hey, we're going to go build some stuff that we think they need. It's another thing to bring them into the software development process on a daily basis. And that's kind of what this report calls out, that there's very, very 
there's a difference between people who do research on populations of users and other and in um you know a more effective way to do that which is to bring the users and kind of into that software development process so i'll pause there because there's there's three other topics i want to hit uh, on the highlights so the third one is amplify technical capabilities with quality documentation um john rich kyle all hate meta work i'm telling you documenting your code and commenting your code is a really, really important thing to do if you want to have a long running, really good, resilient piece of software that people love uh, and can intuitive, intuitively use. So uh, the fourth thing that they talk about in the report is uh, distribute work fairly. So this is more internal to the company that you're working at or the organization you're working at and, and kind of relates to number one, establishing a healthy culture. So what we mean by distributing work uh, fairly uh, Google kind of calls out in the report that people who do repetitive tasks over and over and over again uh, get burnt out really quickly. And they also kind of go into the demographics, which I won't get into like super amount of detail here about like which populations of those people or workers um, have kind of disproportionate amounts of that like kind of mundane routine work, what what most people would call the ops side of DevOps. Um, Interested to get Kyle's take on that in, in a few seconds here. Um, when you don't when you don't distribute that like uh, work to to kind of do the innovation piece, right? So more on the dev side, less on the op side, uh, more on the design side of the house. Like distributing work fairly is really important across the team, especially a software development team, um, as, as you're building solutions for your customers. And then the fifth thing and last thing that they kind of highlight in the report is this. And I think we said a little bit earlier on the cast in relation to uh, software as a service or infrastructure as a service, which is increase infrastructure flexibility with cloud. It, it almost goes without saying that in modern software development, not having to have a whole set of SMEs that understand infrastructure is probably a better place to be if you're a software development organization, because you could just innately use highly reliable and resilient and scalable infrastructure uh, that we mentioned earlier kind of gets patched by its own security team. So you can focus on securely writing and deploying your code. Um, So anyhow, there was a lot there, but I just want to say up front, like, I think this is a really awesome report. I think if you're a technologist, you should care about this a lot because it's not just software development. It's setting the culture, like highlight number one for your organization. But I want to pause there and see, John Kyle, any comments on the state of the DevOps survey uh, that came out for 2023? So I'll say this. I used to work at Google with tons of the Dora folks. They are some of the smartest, most motivated, truly diehard DevOps and SRE people that exist on the planet. And they take this incredibly seriously. Like the amount of time- Kyle, pause. Pause for one second. SRE, just want to go. Oh, over yeah, yeah. Acronym right. check. Site reliability and engineering. Um, they are two different things. Site reliability and engineering versus DevOps. One generally revolves around more uptime. The other generally revolves around how you deploy. Though I will tell you, I generally use them interchangeably. Although everyone who is actual DevOps or SRE in the world is going, what? That's not how it works. But just hear me highly, right offend, highly offended right now. Yeah, I, I kind of <laughs> think in my, and again, I have had director of DevOps in numerous job titles in the past that like SRE is just the newer, more accurate, sexier name for DevOps. And I think that it's actually 
significantly better. Google also has a number of books about SRE and site reliability engineering and workbooks that are wonderful reads, everybody. I highly recommend it. But this Dora report is super dope. Uh, I think I've been reading it since year two or three when it first came out, which is before Google bought the... Or I, I say that, but I don't know if that's actually technically true, but that's just my colloquial knowledge of the situation is that it started out as an independent agency and Google just funded them into oblivion uh, in the, like the best possible way. And now Google helps kind of drive the entire process of it. But it's got just incredibly good insights about what companies that are working really well are doing. And so uh, at my previous company and even at my current company, we use the data in this report to help consult with customers and companies to say, hey, this is where we think you are on the spectrum of, of the, the Dora reports and the Dora uh pillars that they have and then help them drive what's the things that are going to be the most valuable to them. So it's, it's incredibly valuable. I think reading this, if you're anywhere remotely close to infrastructure or DevOps, SRE, CICD, that kind of stuff, deploying software, writing software, it's incredibly valuable. And I'm going to add one thing there. I think that given the stage of your business, what Rich just said around staying away from infrastructure is good. But I think that once you've got your product market fit and you know that your software is going to actually be run, you must invest in understanding how your infrastructure works because otherwise decisions that are made quickly because they are very easy to do to help you get started quickly will become some of the most significant bottlenecks in performance and also uh, lots of corners get cut early on in the software development lifecycle uh, where security becomes third in so many places. And so I would highly recommend that companies always think about coming in and saying, from the ground up, let's take a reanalysis of all of our architectural choices and infrastructure choices and make sure that we're doing the right thing. And that doesn't need to be a, you know, continuous OODA loop that's happening all the time, but it needs to be something that is regular enough where cost, security, and maintainability, as well as resiliency, so many different things come into that play. But that's just me off my soapbox now. So Kyle, I, I want to dig a little bit into what you said there. So, uh, there has been talk that we are, you know, everything being cyclical, there was the cloud hype, and there are those that are saying the cloud hype is coming around, and now everybody's after all these breaches, and, 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 uh, the, the day of the cloud is over. And so I think maybe False. a... a <laughs> uh, also confirmed, <laughs> says, says the guy whose job it is to get people into the cloud. Uh, what, what I think is, is worthy of discussion here is kind of talking probably back again, like Rich said, maybe to the first five casts that we had of asking yourself the question. I, I think, Kyle, you hit it dead on. Like that is too simplistic of a take. Uh, cloud is hot or cloud is not. That That's not the right thing. Based on your maturity, what problem do you want your most talented engineers solving, right? Is it installing infrastructure on-prem and making things work to get there? Maybe. Is, is it engineering your applications to make the cloud bill the lowest it could possibly be. Maybe getting lower. It, it, it all, yeah, getting lower. It, yeah. <laughs> it just, uh, based on your maturity and your business needs, I don't think there are cut and dry answers to this per se. Uh, Rich is like waving his hands up and down. So Rich, over to you. Oh, no, 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 Kyle. I want you to go. I, I'm, I'm excited to talk about something after Kyle's done. So you guys got me all jazzed up. I'm like a little puppy that's got wound up over right. here. But, but Kyle, you go. So I'm going to I'm going to start with a, a micro story. I used to work for a logging company. Um, you know, the, their job was to ingest just terabytes of data every day, store it for a certain amount of time and then serve that back to customers very quickly. OK. And I've ever since I worked there, 
I have felt this very adamantly. There are plenty of reasons not to go to the cloud. Plenty, right? There are plenty of specific architectures and scenarios where owning your own hardware makes a ton of sense, okay? But those are the overwhelming minority of customers and use cases that I have seen. And I have been doing customer adoption of cloud technology for seven years now. That has been all I do. And I've worked with the largest retailers, banks, media, entertainment, and communication and telecom companies on the planet, all the way down to the coolest, most sexy AI startups on the planet. And I will just say that, uh, you know, DHH, the guy that owns Basecamp, uh, has come out and really like poked the the bee's nest, if you will, and said, oh, yeah, we're moving off a of cloud because cloud is not for us. And it's like, cool, you exist in a microcosm, tiny little scenario that does not apply to 99.9% of businesses that exist on the planet. So everyone just saying, oh, well, Basecamp's getting off a of cloud, so we should too, really needs to zoom out and ask yourself if you're that company, because I bet you're not, right? They... It, it's a whole thing. We could do an entire cast on this. Spoiler alert. If you want us to do that, just hit us up on those Twitter comments. I'm sorry, those X comments and let us know uh, that we, we are definitely going to potentially talk about that. But either way, it's a situation of I, I don't think that cloud is hype. I really don't. I think it's some of the most complicated stuff in the world. And I think that the ability to write software very quickly is incredibly powerful. Uh, launch production applications at scale without having to maintain thousands of servers and dozens of data centers is incredibly freeing. You know, all of us used to rack and stack servers and slog Cat5 cables and power cords. Let me tell you how much more fun it is to write code and launch things with an API than it ever was to like run Cat5 and try to, you know, rack and stack servers. So, yeah. I, I disagree. Yeah. So Kyle, now I'm going to take and kind of riff off that a little do it, bit. Do so, it, do it. but let me just do a quick closer on uh, state of the DevOps. Yeah, Dora right? equals so, awesome. Yep. Yeah. Dora is amazing <laughs> Two, You should read it. Uh, and the third part, um, I think, you know, as everybody starts to read all the headlines, right? Because there's a massive push right now. Um, and also probably because my, my news is tailored to me, but um, a huge push on artificial intelligence, right? In the public media, you, you see it everywhere across all sectors, right? Finance sector, you know, government, you, you name it. AI is a thing that's out there, right? Especially because of GPT, right? So open AI, chat GPT, large language learning models. These are things that many people are fascinated and you should be, you should care a lot about this stuff and you should think a lot about what the use case is for that stuff. Um, but I want to bring out that like in the report, they talk about, um, I think for the first time, AI and using AI for software development. And really what the report calls out is that it's in its infancy, right? That there's not really, you know, there's some Harvard Business Review articles that came out, um, and I'll put a link to this in the show notes too, uh, that talk, it literally, the article talks about anybody can code. Like we all are software developers now because large language learning models exist. Now you can make a large language learning model produce code for you. It's not going to be the code that a 10,000 hour coder produces, right? Um, but it will write you some code. And there is a historical trend to use low code, no code, solutions for for coding but those you know you have to have a reason to do that you have to know why you're doing that when to do that more importantly than why and then you know 
how it affects and how you integrate it into your infrastructure. So my point with this entire rant is that I'm really interested to see next year's take on the AI component of addition to software development or making it more efficient. And the last thing I'll say on this topic, because they, they produce this in, in the report, just to kind of give you a little bit of spoiler alert if you're going to read this in the report, but they talk about um, what software developers were thinking about using AI for. And so the first, the largest use case is analyzing data, right? That That's the, the first use case. Like they, they want the function of looking at massive data sets, disparate data sets being brought together and presented in a way that's meaningful, either for the coder or for the customer that they can call through some sort of API, right? So think of this as I make an API call from my code to an LLM that then returns me some of the things I want uh, for my users to see, right? And the second big use case uh, is writing code blocks or data functions. So this gets to the point we talked about earlier, which is like, I'd like AI to write some code for me. Um, so that that's the second use case. And then the third one near and dear to our hearts, analyzing security. Those are kind of the three big use cases that like software developers are thinking about or software development companies are thinking about using AI for. So pause there, guys, any thoughts on, on AI? Okay. The date is eight October, 2023. I'm going to go bold and say this year is going to be neither of those three. This is going to be the year that developers love AI because it comments all their code for them. Yes. I have sat on DevOps teams before and devs are amazing. They make the world go round. One, they hate writing up how their code works and all the paperwork and whatever. I actually told them, hey, if it makes you write more code... I will just go ahead and do the best. And I'm terrible at this. I'll comment your code. I'll write all your paperwork for you. You just keep coding. Uh, that That's where we are, were on the team that I was on. Um, and it was relatively effective. And sometimes coders are not exactly the, bo- the best uh, plain language writers. If coders don't have to write about their code, that is going to make them happy. And making them happy, I think, is generally in all of our best interest. So there, there is my... A uh, bold take, Kyle. All right. So I think all the things that we talked about in the Dora report are, are all very nascent, right? It's like, we're all learning how to do this as we go, but I'm going to challenge everybody that's out there. Chat GPT is great. Cool beans. Love that rock on. But when you're talking about coding, go sign up for GitHub Copilot. Just go do it, right? Get VS code. If you're not using that, I recommend you do it. It's super simple. Get GitHub's Copilot integrated in and just go write something silly. Like go try to write tic-tac-toe or battleship or something like that and have that piece of software help you it is phenomenal and i'm saying this as somebody who is not a full-time software developer i am a casual at best software developer but i'm paying for github copa just to play with it it's like cheaper than a netflix subscription for me and i get a few hours of fun out of that every single month it's incredible and then Meta just released Llama 2 a couple of weeks ago. Highly recommend everyone go play with that too if you're into software development. But I think John is nailing it right now. What this does, I'm going to make an analogy here. The humans with robots are going to consistently and, and massively outperform humans without robots as we go forward into the future. And the use of AI to help software development is going to be the exact same 
as we today think about what cloud did to us, Racket and Stack and Servers. It's going to take the low value work and it's going to obfuscate it so that you can focus on the very high value work, right? All that low value stuff is going to fade away, like commenting my code, making sure I'm following my coding standards, making sure my variable names are consistent throughout my entire interface, making sure I didn't skip the semicolon, you know, all this low value stuff. Whereas you can be like, okay, when you're just text describing to an interface and then you get to go in and debug and when it has knowledge of the rest of your code base so it can make sure that like, hey, if you change this function, it's going to impact all the rest of these in very nasty ways. That stuff is where this is going to shine. Now, the next layer of that to me is the additional analysis of security features, the additional analysis of data. They're like, hey, I just grabbed this two terabyte data set and I want to ask AI, like, what are the useful insights about I don't know. I always use this example. Uh, Walmart's got, there's a website called Kaggle.com. You should go check it out. It's a, like a large data set repository of public data sets. There's like a Walmart data set in there from years ago, multiple gigabytes in size, great for testing. And you can be like, which products sold better when it was raining outside at all these Walmart locations or whatever, like that kind of stuff. That's cool to use AI tools for into analysis. That's also an absolutely terrible example. I'm just giving something that's kind of easily understandable. But those things are going to evolve. And I think that the days where, again, humans without robots making strategic decisions on behalf of businesses are, they're already gone. They're like, they're already gone. It's humans with robots from here on out, as far as how we write software effectively and how anyone who's going to excel at this, right? All your 10x engineers, they're already using this. They're already using this. I talk to software developers all day. Like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Kyle, what a way to like throw the softball up, right? For, for me to, to kind of to kind of swing the bat. So what I want to end down here, again, looking at a little sticker to talk about war fighting. So we're going to do it for a second, right? Um so in addition to the state of the DevOps report that got released by Dora, right, by the Google's Dora team, um, IT Revolution Press is going to drop, it's it's on their website now, but on the 10th of October, they're going to drop a publication that you for purchase that you could buy called Industrial DevOps. And Industrial DevOps, this will really quickly come to the warfighting scenario here in a second, is all about cyber physical systems. Okay. New term, Rich. What does that mean? All cyber physical systems, and I'll generalize this to just be very quick, is the coupling of hardware, software, and firmware together to perform some sort of task in a kinetic sense in the real world, right? So the software and the hardware are doing things together. So when we say autonomous systems or Kyle's reference to robots, right? This is what we're talking about, right? An autonomous system and a human team paired up performing a function, right? So why I think this is extremely relevant and super timely that this document, by the way, Dr. Suzette Johnson and a few other folks are the people that have authored this book. And they've been working on this for years, at least since 2018. So this should be a really good read. Um, uh, taking a look at it if you're interested in this uh, you know, intersection, right? Um, but the reason why it's super timely is because the Marine Corps just tested its first flight of something called the Kratos XQ-58 Alpha Valkyrie. If you don't know what that is, there'll be a link to it in the show notes, but it's an unmanned aerial vehicle that they tested in partnership at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida on Monday, the 2nd of October with the Air Force and with the Navy. So 
this is an autonomous um, unmanned aerial system that's supposed to fly like a co-pilot, right? Most of the AIs that you're hearing about are being termed co-pilot, right? Microsoft has their version of it for O365. It's called co-pilot. GitHub has co-pilot, right? This literal sense of having a co-pilot as an autonomous system flying with you as an, uh, a naval aviator or an airman, right, as a pilot is kind of a pretty big deal. And the Marine Corps with Force Design 23, General Berger went out, you know, former Commandant Berger, right, went out and, and traded a bunch of physical Marines as far as, inf- uh, you know, uh, recruiting goes and dropped the size of the Marine Corps to get enough money back to create these systems that he thought would be an asymmetric advantage in the battle space for U.S. forces and the joint force. So it's just super timely. We have this industrial DevOps document talking about how do you build these systems quickly and at scale, right, that add value for your customers. We have the Marine Corps and the joint force that are putting out these autonomous systems to help gain a tactical advantage on the battlefield. Um, And so this is a super timely subject that we don't have enough uh, time left on this cast to go into, but it's something that I would ask if you're a warfighting professional and a technologist, this is where it's at, man. Just like Kyle said, humans, robots together accomplishing a task for the greater good is the future in Rich's opinion. So if you care about this, I'll say one last piece of this. Because it's the Marine Corps, we have to have a cool name um, and acronyms. So we call this, or the Marine Corps calls this, the Marine Corps Penetrating Affordable Autonomous Collaborative Killer Portfolio, or PAC-P, if you're shrinking it down to an acronym. Listen, just go take a look at this thing. I'm not going to lie. It's a sexy looking drone. Like, it's it looks pretty BA with the Marine Corps, like, um, livery. I think that's the correct term for this, right? Like, the paint job that it's on this thing. It looks pretty sick. Yeah. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll say this and then uh, we can kind of move, move on to the rest of the cast. But I do think that producing like it's even in the name of the portfolio, right? Affordable is in there for a reason, right? I think the um, the Valkyrie, I think it costs about $8.5 million, right? So you can think about that in terms of how you see that as affordable or not affordable inside of the entire DOD budget. But I will say, I still think that's too much money, even though that's a super cool thing for a very specific pur- purpose. But if we want to start using drones in a way that's affordable, we got to drive that, you know, that price value down and we got to be able to produce that at scale. And that's really where I want to tip and cue over to please go read Dr. Suzette Johnson's book on industrial DevOps, because she talks about how you can make that happen with the platforms that you're taking some of these emerging technologies and, and putting them on top of with the software. So anyhow, John, I've nerded out completely on a, on a, on a topic here that is industrial DevOps, but I think all the DevOps stuff is super awesome. People should do it. They should do SRE and they should go read about it. Kyle, it's that time. Hit us with your hot take. You should definitely hit unmute first though. Oh man, I just did that thing. I got to put like 10 bucks in the jar. This is embarrassing. All right. We talked about a ton of stuff on this cast today and it's gone a little long because it's the first time the three of us have been together solo on a cast in a long time. And so we've been wanting to nerd out with each other and hang out, but there's a couple takeaways that I'm going to knife hand here. And, and 
the first and foremost is you are never going to prevent bad software. You're just not. So the thing that you can do is be prepared to pivot quickly. Have systems in place to understand that the most critical part of your entire business is going to have a vulnerability at some point. Might be now, might be the next Log4j, might be a hundred different things that come up, but it's going to happen. And so you've got to have you and your teams trained in order to respond quickly. And it's always still a good idea to trust industry-leading software so that you don't end up like writing your own password manager or writing your own password interpreter at the end of the day. Like there are just silly things that we should not be doing ourselves anymore. So there, there's a delicate balance here. I'm not trying to say there's one right answer ever, but if you can respond fast to zero day and patching of all of your systems whenever these things come out, you're doing right. And take the risks where you need to, but also obfuscate those away by taking trusted partners that you can work with, i.e. like I don't store things anywhere anymore. I store it on my Google Drive because I actually trust that the thousands of security engineers at Google have more time to focus on security than I do, right? I'm not going to make some novel solution in my basement that's going to like solve me, you know, storing files. I'd much rather just pay my $3.99 a month or whatever I pay for my 100 gigabytes on, on Gmail. So all that to say, right? Pivot, learn and pivot. Learning about DevOps, learning about SRE, learning about how to actually create an organization that can be nimble is great. That state of the door report is a great place to start. Rich, as long as the knife hands have not rusted into the sheaths, can you pull them out and give us something? Yeah, you know what's really funny, John? It's not the rust. It's the cold. The blade sticks when you try to pull it out and it's in October, right? It's so it's over, man. It's not December. It's not January. <laughs> Sorry. I had to throw the gladiator quote, uh, quote out there. Movie quote. Okay. But yeah, so uh, I will unsheathe my knife hand and I'll say this, even though I'm super passionate about this, I'll say this very slowly and calmly. Um, Kyle's point on humans and machines working together to accomplish a task is the future. Um, and I would highly recommend that in order to understand how these physical, what are called cyber-physical systems, integrate emerging technologies, start with understanding the emerging technologies side of it first. I would recommend that, right? And there's a great report for national security professionals that are listening to this podcast called the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence's final report, right? This thing came out in 2021. You can get an X sum on that or read the whole thing. But I, I highly suggest that from a warfighting perspective, we should care about this stuff a lot as national security practitioners. And we should care about looking at where these technologies fit in our warfighting functions and look at who we need to talk to and partner to make those things a reality. And I'll just say this, like Kyle's point on security, you're probably never going to be better than a Google engineer or another hyperscale cloud provider or security engineer providing security for these things or engineering them. That's why we have such an amazing industrial complex in the United States, right? What they need you to do, and I'd offer as your job as a security uh, national security practitioner, is to understand how to implement them in novel ways to gain a tactical advantage. So joint warfighting concepts or Marine Corps warfighting concepts those are things you should think about. The innovative ways that you can apply them to accomplish a task 
in the given security scenario. Um, and so, John, I will take my knife hand and I'll put it back in my sheath right now. Thank you for your time. Dear listeners, thank you for joining us. You can connect with us on social media by going to Twitter and following at USMC underscore T-F-P-H-O-E-N-I-X. That's at USMC underscore Task Force Phoenix. Our editor is Sarah Clarkson, and marketing support is provided by Jake Osborne. You can support the cast by going to Apple Podcasts and giving us that five-star review you've been putting off. And adding a comment. And with that, we are out.